We're starting a new series today, and I need to see a show of hands. If I when you see this up here, how many of you have any idea what Stranger Things it okay? Good. I was concerned that I would do that, and like no hand would go up. If you don't know what it is, it doesn't matter. It'll still be very meaningful and appropriate to you. If you do know what it is, you might just have a little bit more fun with it. Um, it's, a, it's a Netflix series um, on, on TV, so this is not an ad for it, all right? I'm not saying you should watch it. I'm not necessarily saying don't. It would be hard for me to say don't watch it because I did. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Um, but this, this is just a launching point. We're going to have a little bit of fun, but it's a series. It's about a bunch of friends. Um, it's, it's set in the 80s, and it had it been set just a little bit earlier, I could still wear many of the clothes that I have <laughs> and dress up for it today. But um, it has some good guys in it. It has some bad guys in it. It has some very strange things in it, um, not the least of which is uh, the upside down. It's an upside-down world, and we'll get into that a little bit more. I think that's why in the last few weeks in prep for this series, that's why our lights have been flashing so often. Um, for those of you who have seen the series, you, you know what that means. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to use this as a launching-off point to, to kind of quickly go through um, and hit some of the highlights in, in the book of 1 Peter, New Testament book of 1 Peter. Um, and that book is about how God is calling us as Jesus followers to be stranger people. That's really what he's asking us to do. So let me give you a little bit of context for that book. First Peter, who knows who the book was written by? Yeah, you're looking at me like, it's a trick question, isn't it? It was written by Peter. That's spoiler alert. It was written by Simon Peter. Um, and it's interesting because Peter is often described, when you hear Peter described, he's like an oof, you know, kind of an oof, like an, like an uneducated fisherman. You know, that's Peter. And that is not true. This is a sharp guy. Peter writes this book in particular to a group of hurting Christians. And when you read what he writes in this short book, there's some tough stuff in here. And, and this is not some, you know, mouth breather kind of guy. This guy knows what's going on. He writes about election. He writes about foreknowledge and sanctification and obedience and explains the blood of Jesus and the Trinity. And he talks about grace and he talks about revelation. He really gets into some heavy things. But there are two themes that kind of keep emerging over and over and over again. They keep recurring. And one is this, the hope that we have in Jesus. And that we are not like, the second thing, we are not like the rest of the world. We're stranger people to them. It's like we're living in the upside-down world to those people. We're strange. Um, and he's very emotional in his writing because he's writing to people who are suffering big time. Now, now many of you here would say, oh, I know what that is. I'm suffering too. And you might be. We're not 100% sure when First Peter was written. But it's between 60 and 65 AD. So in that window is where it was written. And it was written during the reign of a guy named Nero, one of the Caesars. And if you don't know anything about him, this is a time when Christians especially faced, faced extreme persecution. Nero, just to give you a little insight into him, he killed his mom. He killed his wife probably killed his second wife. 
in July of 64 AD, the city of Rome burned out of control for six days. They finally got the fire under control and out, only to see it flare up again for three more days. Most people believe that the fire was started by Nero because he wanted, he had this insatiable lust, this insatiable desire to build and to make these these grandiose things, and he needed to get rid of some of the old stuff, and the Senate wouldn't let him build, so he thought, I'll just burn it down, and I can start all over again. And when it got done, it wasn't going quite the way he expected, so he had to blame somebody else. So he blamed who he called, his words for them were, the Christ ones, the Christians. And so he blamed them for that, and the persecution that had been going on just ramped up and escalated. You can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. It's crazy. Um, for instance, he would take Christians, and this is, this is in full view of everybody. He would take Christians, he would kill animals, pull the skin off, put the skin, the dead animal skin, on the Christians, and put them in a place where there was wild animals. So they would attack and eat the Christians, and then they'd watch them. He would have parties in his place, and he would take Christians and he would cover them in hot wax. They're alive. Cover them in hot wax and hook them onto trees and light them on fire for light for his party. This is the kind of guy that we're dealing with here. This is the context and the culture to which Peter is writing. These are the people who are suffering this every single day that Peter is writing to. Okay, so stranger people, the book of 1 Peter, who is this for? Who is this message for? It's for two groups of people. And you probably find yourself in one of these two groups of people. The first group that this message is for is for those people facing a trial. And you say, I understand that. I have some things going on in my life. I'm facing a trial. I get that. Maybe it's something in your life just seems unfair. Something that you wish you could change. You wish wasn't there. You just, you don't have the answers for it. Maybe it's, it's relationship or marriage struggles. Maybe it's financial obstacles and you're struggling to pay your bills. Maybe you're battling illness or, you know, there's trouble with your kids making bad decisions or for whatever reason, you're just feeling helpless. So that's the first group that this is for, the, those who are facing a trial. The second group that this is written for is for those who will be facing a trial. Because you're in one of those two groups. You're either facing one right now, or you're going to be. And there's a word for that. Life. That's what happens. So we understand that life can be difficult. And if right now you're not in the middle of one of those things, then listen carefully, because you're going to need this shortly. Because you will be. We know it can be hard. Life can be tough. So no matter what you're going through, we want you to hear from God in a way that would speak to you, that would speak to us as we're hurting. And that's the context of how this all starts. So starting in verse 1, 1 Peter 1, it says this. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people, the ones he picked. We talked about that in the last few weeks. Who are living as, and here's one of our keywords, foreigners. They're living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these people, he wrote this letter to these people who were living as foreigners. I put this on your outline so you could see it. 
the word is, is peripodemus. That's not the important part. But depending on which translation you have, it's translated a number of different ways. It's translated foreigners, exiles, sojourners, aliens, or strangers. That's how these people were living. Because uh, we are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a stranger. And the reason, it, the reason is we're not from here. And so we don't live like, we're not made for here. We're made for another place. And so we don't live like those from here. And as followers of Jesus, we're not called to look like the rest of the world. We're called to be stranger people. Now, some of you take that calling very seriously. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. But we're talking about stranger values than the world has. Stranger standards, stranger goals. It's odd to them when they see what we do and how we do it and why we do it. We have to remember that word tells us this world isn't our home. We're just passing through. Uh, somebody passed through this world this, this last week. Um, one of the greatest Christians of, of the millennia, and that's Billy Graham. Billy Graham personally, face-to-face, preached to over 210 million people. Face-to-face, more than any other preacher ever has. Just at his rallies that he had, over three million people gave their lives to Jesus. Can you imagine the welcome that he had? I'm going to share throughout this message just some of, some of the, the quotes. If you want to, to have a fun afternoon, look up Billy Graham quotes online and read some of them. It's mind-blowing. But we have to remember that this world isn't our home. And one of the things he said was, my home is in heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. And he lived that way. So we're going to start this week talking about stranger faith. Stranger faith in those trials. We're going to look at stranger values in this upside down culture in the second week. We're going to look at a stranger calling in this crazy dark world we live in. And then a stranger perspective in persecution. So first this week, we're going to look at stranger faith in trials. Different than the rest of the world. Now, when we, when we think of that word, even trials, it's like, I don't like that. Trials are bad. Why would God allow that in my life? As I read verses 6 and 7 here, I want you to remember who he's writing to and what they're going through at this moment. What they might have just had a, a family member be a tiki torch in one of his parties. And they're under this pressure constantly. And here's what he writes to them. Verse 6, so be truly glad. Really? Be glad? And he says, here's why. There is wonderful joy ahead. This isn't your home. Whatever you're going through right now, there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Now, if there is a genuine faith, and, and these trials would show that their faith is genuine, then there also must be a false faith. Because if there's a genuine faith, there's a false faith. One of the big challenges I see in the, in the church as a whole today, especially in America, is false faith. I believe many people would call themselves Christians but they're really not. It's a false faith. 
If there is a genuine faith, faith, there's a false faith. And my great fear is that there are many in the church. They, they kind of are there semi-regularly. They believe they're a Christian, but their faith is not real. Can I be that bold and blunt to say that? Because what we're talking about has eternal consequences. I want to show you three different types of false faith. It's on your outline if you're taking notes. The first type of false faith is inherited faith. Inherited faith. That's where people think, well, my parents were Christians, so I am. You know, they brought me to church. We, I've had people tell me this. We, we were regular. We were always there. Every Christmas and Easter, <laughs> we were regular. I've had people tell me, Journey in our church, oh, that's my church. It's like, I, I don't recognize you. Well, I was there last year, you know, once, but it's their church. See, the thing is, just because your parents came to church or took you to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. This is one of the reasons why many students struggle often with their faith after they go off to school, you know, or they get out on their own in the world and they struggle because even though they may have attended church regularly or, or semi-regularly, their faith was not theirs. It was their moms or their dads or their grandparents. It was somebody else's faith that they were looking to and that's an inherited faith, and that's a false faith. God has children. Children are the ones who, according to John 1.12, believe Jesus and receive him. And as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God. He doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. And you can't get in on somebody else's coattails. That's the first false faith, inherited faith. The second one is shallow faith. It's a shallow faith. Jesus told a story, you can look at it later, it's in Matthew 13. He told a story about a sower who, who sows seed, and it falls on all kinds of different grounds but, um, and, and, and has different results because of that, and it kind of uh, relates that to us. But he talks about when he sows a seed, and it takes some root, but it's shallow. And, and the worries of life, and the deceitfulness of life, and wealth, and desire, and those kinds of things, choke out that word that was sown. It's a shallow faith. And the reason that it gets choked out is because the roots weren't deep enough. And again, that might be where some of you are. The roots just don't go down deep enough. It's shallow. In fact, if I can be real honest, I don't want to be like, you know, Debbie Downer, prophet of doom or anything, but this is true. Six months from now, some of you here that are happy to be here you won't be here. You won't be in any church. You won't be reading the Bible. You, you'll be hurting, you'll be afraid, or you'll be lost in some addiction, and you'll be off because something distracted you and you moved on because it was a shallow faith. There will be no spiritual power. There will be no spiritual victory. And unfortunately, that's what I've watched for 20 years. I've watched that happen to people where there's, there's, there's no power, there's no victory, and they drift away, and I've seen it over and over and over. And the reason is because they didn't have real roots to keep them deep. It was just a shallow thing. That's the way it is. It's interesting. I have never heard it so quiet in here. <laughs> and maybe that's because I'm stepping on some toes, but this is the truth. Some people won't be here. You're here, maybe now. You're kind of excited, but six months from now, you won't be. That's why we say this all the time. 
an occasional Sunday or even regular Sunday attendance is not enough to get the strength to fight the devil. And those of you who like stranger things, I would say, after all, you're not 11. Okay? <laughs> See? <laughs> See, what we need is we need this. Some of you, are, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's perfectly okay. What we need is we need this larger setting. But we also need a smaller setting as well. A setting that has accountability, a setting that has closeness. That's a small group, a journey group, a mentor. That smaller setting and relationship where we can hold each other accountable. And, and there's a lot of people that say, yeah, I tried that. I was involved in a couple of those small groups. There's always someone in a group that's weird. You know, stranger. There's always someone like that in a group. And here's the truth. Yes, there is one in every group. And you might be thinking, not in my group. There's not one in my group. There's one in every group. <laughs> and if you don't know who it is in your group, it's you. <laughs> but that's a good thing. Because we all have to learn how to deal with weird people. I mean, my family had to learn how to deal with me, okay? You have to learn how to deal with weird people. You have to learn how to forgive people. That doesn't happen on Sunday morning. That happens in a group, in a, in a small setting where the rubber meets the road and things happen. And you realize, I was wrong. And they learn how to forgive. And they do something, and you learn how to forgive people who hurt you. And, and you have to deal in those settings with things you don't like. And what it does is it moves us out of self and thinking about ourselves all the time and, and more into thinking about others. Because those smaller settings is where the growth really happens. So you get in this community where you're studying God's word and you're praying with each other, you're caring for each other, and then somebody in the group, maybe you, starts to stray. And it's like, no, no, get back here, you know, get back here. We're Jesus followers. We don't do that. And you have somebody to hold you accountable. And you know what happens? Your roots go a little deeper. That only happens in those settings. This is one of the most important things. Listen, because there's somebody here. You need to hear this today. You're here and you're kind of, you kind of just come, you know, you feel like you're kind of in, but you need to take a step in. Before the devil takes you out. You need to do that. Church is the body of Christ. It's where we, we gather corporately to worship God and to strengthen one another. And really, we are an army that attacks the world with love. That's what the church does. This really matters to God. This whole idea of church really matters to him because Jesus died for the church. He's returning for the church. He said, I will build my church. The church matters to him, and so it should matter to us. So we're not going to have a shallow faith. A third kind of false faith is a conditional faith. And this is all too common. You've heard it said. Maybe you've said it yourself. I'll believe as long as things go my way. And we don't necessarily say it like that. What happens is you get in a tough season. There's hurt, there's pain, there's, there's bad things happening. And the question that comes to the surface is, how can I believe in a God who would allow that to happen? That's conditional faith. That means I'll believe as long as things go my way. 
That's a conditional faith, and it's false faith. And there are those of you who have a false faith. And, and I believe that God brought you here today to begin the process of changing that into a genuine faith. Trials can reveal the depth of your faith. And if you're going through a difficult time, and, and, and some of you may, may say, well, my faith is being tested right now. My faith is being tested. So what does God do? How is it that he uses those trials in our life? Because as I said, you're either in one or more, or you're going to be. You may be just coming out of one, you're in one, or you're going to be going in one. That's the, so how does God use that? There's two different ways he uses that, according to 1 Peter, this passage. Here's the first way. Trials reveal your faith. So it's, it's, it's what's already there. It's just kind of unveiling it for you to see. It reveals your faith. In 1 Peter 1, verse 7, we read this. It said, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. See, they had a genuine faith. Their faith was genuine. And the trials revealed that for them and others to see. Because the truth is, a faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. If your faith hasn't been tested, it can't be trusted. In fact, that was Peter. You see, his faith had been tested. He had been tested. And, and he even failed a bit. But then he was strengthened. He, regr he regrouped. He was redeemed. He, he was made new and completely transformed. In fact, I want to go back in Peter's life for just a moment about 25 years before he wrote this book. So 25 years earlier in his life, you go back a couple decades, and he had a conversation with Jesus that was recorded in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 22. And Peter's, you know, bragging like, like they all are. You know, that'll never happen to me, I'll do this. And here's what Jesus says in verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon. And I say it that way because it has it in there twice. And it's there for a reason. That he said it that way. <sighs> Simon. Simon. You know how many times I've heard my name like that? <laughs> <laughs> Satan has asked, Jesus said, to sift all of you as wheat. All the disciples, all those ones gathered with him there in those last moments. But I, this right before Jesus dies, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Simon would fail. Jesus predicted he would fail and would deny him. But Jesus said, your faith, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And for me, these next words are the most encouraging words in the whole Bible. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You see, what happened in the early years, Peter was, he was obnoxious, he was impulsive, just very, you know, cocky, inconsistent kind of guy. In later years, after seeing the resurrected Jesus, he was faithful, he was devoted, he was patient, he was, he was bold. Early on, not so much. In fact, just like Jesus predicted, the Peter who said, I won't deny you, I'll die for you. He denied Jesus three times. This big, burly fisherman, little junior high girl comes up to him. You know Jesus? Nope, nope. And he's scared to death of the little girl. This is the guy who would eventually die as a martyr because something changed in him. 
Peter, the guy who messed up, ended up being the greatest preacher on the day of Pentecost, the guest speaker that comes up and preaches in 3,000 people in that service, first service of the church ever. 3,000 people turned their lives over to Jesus because of what Peter said about Jesus. 3,000 people born into the kingdom of God. What happened is that God used the trials in Peter's life to strengthen his faith, to change him into what he was becoming. And trials can reveal and they can strengthen your faith. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, we looked at this uh, before, he even said this in James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and they were facing those trials. He said, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what trials do for us. So you might be in one of those seasons of life where you are racked with, racked with pain. And I promise you, there is always purpose in the pain. God is not causing the pain. But there is purpose in the pain because God never wastes a hurt. And when you're going through it, he can take it. He's always working in it because he is always for you. He is always loving you, and he is always good. We just don't see it in the middle of those trials. So how does God use your trials? The first thing is, trials reveal your faith. And then the second thing is, we've alluded to this, trials draw you closer to God. Trials draw you closer to God. Remember who he's writing to, and what they're going through, and what they're experiencing, and the fears that they have at this point? Here's what he says in verse 8. You love God even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with glorious, inexpressible joy. See, the world can't understand this. They can't understand how we could rejoice and have joy in the middle of difficult circumstances. They don't understand it's because we trust him. Even though it's tough right now, we trust him. And the reward, it says in verse 9, for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. You know what this is? This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is not that Jesus saves you from your trials. The good news is that Jesus saves you from your sin. That's the good news. I often hear, we actually talked about this in one of our series a year or two ago. Um, I hear this, wait, God won't give you more than you can handle. Sorry, yes, he will. That's actually a misrepresentation of a verse that says God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He'll always provide a way out. And it's funny that in the one instance, they'll misquote God, in the other one, they'll say, well, there was nothing I could do but sin. <laughs> there is always a way out. We don't always choose it, but there's always a way out. But I believe very much that God often allows more than we can handle in our lives. And the reason he does that is so that we would learn to trust him, to learn to depend on him. In our weakness, his strength comes through. Here's what Billy Graham said. The will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain. 
God will be there. He will show up when you are past the end of your rope. When you have way more than you can handle, you realize, I can't handle this. But God can. And his grace will show up. And as you grow to depend on God, that's what happens. And that only comes through triumphs. It says you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. See, we want life to just go good because then we can rejoice. That's not what causes the rejoicing. Billy Graham also said, mountaintops, we all like mountaintops. Mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valley. You see, my faith is not based on what I see. My faith is based on who God is. And the closer I get to him, the more real that becomes. And as I go through trials, I don't have to say, oh, can I trust a God like that? I know how I can trust a God like that because he has proven faithful all of these years. You see, we are indeed a strange people to this world. And we have a strange faith during trials. Because that's not how the world looks at trials. To an upside-down world, we're the ones who appear upside-down and strange. Kind of supposed to be that way. But we do this so much better together. We're not designed to do this on our own. You're not designed to go through those things on our own. Our faith is strengthened when we do those things together. In fact, the word we looked at at the beginning, um, uh, peripodemus. Let me read you another definition of that word. It's a sojourner, a foreigner, you know, a stranger, who literally passes through, that's what the word means, but still has a personal relationship with the people in that locale. The, the, the prefix to that word para means close beside. So he's saying it's a temporary, but it's a very active relationship. We're not meant to go through this alone. We go through this not only with each other, but for others. It's not just about us. So what we need to learn how to do is to take a step in. Take a step into God. Take a step in and say, I don't understand this. I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take that step in. And then we need to take that step in with others, too. And we need to have that, that setting, that small group, that smaller setting than this large thing so that we can have some accountability, so that we can help and pour into people's lives and so that they can help and pour into our lives because that's how it works. We're better together. Those early Christians that Peter was writing to, they would have never been able to handle that on they handled that because they had a relationship with Jesus that was unshakable. But they were able to handle that because they were together in it. And they, they were able to encourage each other, and, and they were able to rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy, realizing that the reward for trusting him was salvation. That's our reward for trusting him, salvation of our souls. I'd like you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, there are, there are many here who maybe they're just coming out of some things. Maybe they're going into some. 
And I pray, Father, that today what they have heard is that a faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. And as they're going through that trial, Father, and it reveals their faith, maybe it's revealing something to them that's not as genuine as it should be. Maybe it's one of those um, inherited faiths or shallow faiths or, or a conditional faith. And today, they would realize that what they need is that genuine faith in you. It can't be somebody else's. It can't be all choked out by the, the cares and things and concerns and worries of this world. And it can't be based on what they're going through. It has to be based on you and who you are. And that maybe today, for the first time in simple faith, they would take that step into you and say, I don't understand that, but I'm going to place my trust in you. I, I'm going I'm to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'm going I'm to turn my life over to you, and I'm going to trust that you are good, that you are for me, and that you love me more than I could ever imagine. And Father, for those who have already stepped across that line, they, they, too, might be going through things. They may have someone in their circle, their sphere of influence that's going through things. I pray that we might um, be the church, that we wouldn't just go to church, that we would be the church, and that we would help and strengthen each other, that that, that faith would, would be that inexpressible, glorious joy, knowing that you have something amazing. Father, thank you for that. And my prayer is that, that we would just lean into you today. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. That song actually makes me homesick. I think of the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Being able to run through those streets and shouting, Christ alone. That happened to Billy Graham this week. After 99 years, after 60 years of preaching and following Jesus and doing what Jesus asked, can you imagine the welcome? God wants to welcome you one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. The trials that we go through are what shape us for that. Here's what Billy Graham said. Someone asked me once if I didn't think God was unfair, allowing me to have Parkinson's disease and other medical problems when I have just tried to serve him faithfully. I replied that I did not see it that way at all. Suffering is part of the human condition, and it comes to all of us. The key is how we react to it, either turning away from God in anger turning away from God in bitterness, or growing closer to him in trust and confidence. I want you to be able to turn closer to him because those trials reveal our faith. Those trials also can draw us closer to God as during the middle of them we can turn to him and we can realize he loves us and he is for us. Father, thank you so much for that incredible love for us. I pray that as, as we experience the trials we go through, whether they're brought upon us by things external to us or we bring them on ourselves, I know that they will, they will reveal our faith. And we want that faith to be genuine and not false. 
I also know, Father, that those trials can draw us closer to you, to make us more like Jesus. And my prayer is that we would be able to go through those things with your strength, with the kind of, of trust in you that can bring glorious, inexpressible joy, knowing that there is hope for us. Father, thank you. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.